Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ezra again, Ezra chapter 9, page 381, if you're using the Bibles here, Ezra 9. We're actually going to be looking at the last verse of chapter 9 first, uh, before we walk through the chapter. President Calvin Coolidge is known as a man of few words. Some people called him Silent Cal. And there was a Sunday that he went to church without his wife. And the story goes that when he came home, his wife asked him, well, what was the sermon about? His answer was, sin. Well, what did the preacher say about sin? He was against it. This morning's message is really about sin. It doesn't really matter what I say. uh, God is against it. Sin is ugly. Sin is what has messed up our world and our lives. And yet, unless we have a clear view of sin, we cannot live well as believers. The opening... uh, Rather, the the, the closing verse of this chapter kind of defines the issue of sin. Verse 15. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. That is reality. God is righteous, and we do not deserve to stand in his presence. And if there is to be hope for us as believers in our sinful nature, it is to start with a clear recognition of the seriousness of sin. In the opening six chapters of Ezra, we have read of a wave of 50,000 Jews who had been in exile in Babylon who are graciously provided and led by God to go back to the homeland, to Israel. There God had commissioned them to rebuild the temple. They started. They stopped. They stalled. When God sent a prophet, they restarted. Does this this kind of sound like the way our Christian life goes sometimes? Then 77 years pass, and Ezra chapter 7, we saw that now Ezra, the first wave was led by Zerubbabel, now Ezra leads them back to the land, a new group back to the land. He comes equipped with authorization from the king, Really a blank check. He comes with new priests and uh, sacrifices. And he comes to encourage them. He comes to check on them spiritually. But when he arrives, what he actually finds is bad news. Verses 1 through 4. After these things had been done, referring to Ezra and his group arriving and beginning to settle, we find actually about four months have passed when you 
compare a couple of the time notes. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, imagine that, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. The first step of hope, when we want to start over, when we see a need for a fresh start, is to simply recognize the seriousness of our Sin. The first couple of verses might be the most important because they show us a common cause for a downward spiritual track, and that is the influence of ungodly people. If you look in your story or your family's story, if there has been a decline spiritually, you can find the influence of ungodly people. It is not an excuse because we choose who will influence us. Here the ungodly influences are the pagan women that the Israelite men pursued and married. Uh, to clarify things, there are two groups of Jewish people in the context here. There's even two different uh, references when it says the leaders. So keep in mind, there has been an exile, a return from exile led by Zerubbabel in the opening chapters. And so that's one group that has settled there and been there for decades. Then there's another group which has just come more recently led by Ezra, and they've been there four months. The leaders in verse 1 are those who were with Ezra when he arrived. They are the ones who observe as they begin to settle among their relatives that they had never met because it had been 77 years. As they begin to settle, they realize something is wrong because they notice that their Jewish cousins are involved in pagan practices. And then they are beginning to understand why they are involved. It's because of intermarriage, spiritually mixed marriages. And the Canaanite wives have influenced the Jewish husbands. And so now they are involved in pagan practices, worshiping idols, pagan sacrifices, uh, immorality. God's people were involved. So how did all of this happen? They have taken some of their daughters as wives. That included the leaders. The leaders in verse 2 
are the leaders of the previous group of remnants. And they had no excuse because Israel was warned. This is what was in their scriptures back at the time of Moses a thousand years before. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. They will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. If, if, if you develop these friendships, that's what's going to happen. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, they will lead your sons to do the same. Are Christian men attracted to ungodly women? Silly question. The alluring women splashed on screens everywhere are not featured for their godliness. Satan's old ploy is very effective. And Christian young men often flippantly find someone they're interested in completely ignoring the godliness issue. And of course, it's not simply a guy thing. It works both ways. Moses said, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. So who they would marry would matter because whole generations are impacted by the simple choice of a spouse who does not share devotion to the Lord. The holy race is mingled, it says. Um, Is this a racial thing? Is this about the color of skin? No, the issue is clearly the issue of holiness. Because in fact, these people, these people groups who are listed here, were actually the same race. They looked the same. They're all Semites. So you, you could not tell one from the other any more than most Europeans, whatever country, whether they were born here or that doesn't, they were not a different race, but they were a different spiritual race. It's an issue of a holiness, if, of holiness. If, if you have the privilege of knowing the word of God and what it teaches, if you have the privilege of having grown up in a Christian home where you have been taught the scriptures, if you have the privilege of being part of a church family where you understand the scriptures are the authority in which God, by which God speaks to us, you are especially accountable. You're accountable for your life. You are accountable for the future of every child and grandchild. You bear that responsibility. And they had mingled this holy race. So it is so important who we date, who we marry. This having happened over those decades, how did Ezra respond? He is shocked. Tearing clothes, pulling out hair, gets attention. It's an extreme reaction that was normal at a, t- at a funeral. At a time of intense grief, but no one had died. Instead, Ezra had simply seen, knew that he was witnessing a, a, a living spiritual death. He had come back to teach God's word. He had come back with, with, with encouragement for their worship. He came back to find out how they were doing. And what he finds 
is appalling. The way we can often assess spiritual condition is to ask ourselves what appeals to us versus what appalls us. Is sin repulsive to us, things that might attract unbelievers? Is there a difference? Do we have a sensitivity to the the voice of the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer today? Do we have a sensitivity when we want something we should not want, see something we should not see, read something that is not true? Does the Spirit give us that discernment? Is it appealing or appalling? Do we see Satan's imprint on ideas about money, about success? Do we sense Satan's devious deceit when immoral relationships of all kinds are portrayed as good and wonderful because of the power of a story? Or do we have the imprint of the Holy Spirit who alerts us to what we see here and where our hearts are drawn? You see, it is about influence, We are influenced by those who are influenced by Satan. So here we are. We are are in Christ as believers. We have the Holy Spirit, but we still have our sinful flesh. But in this little circle of me, I am surrounded by a world into which Satan from the outside is pouring everything he can to distract or diminish and minimize and destroy us. So, in my flesh, am I falling to the influence of those who are influenced by the enemy? We cannot blame society. We would expect that society would uh, follow the ideas of unbelief. We shouldn't be surprised if Society changes its view of morality or marriage, as has happened in the last decades, really. But we should be appalled if we, as believers in Christ, we who say we believe the Bible, begin to adjust, accept, or minimize that which God hates. Why was Ezra shocked while everyone else already settled, seemed oblivious to what was happening. The difference is found if we look back in chapter 7, verse 10. It's a difference in Ezra. Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. The only way to have a clear mind about sin is to be immersed and immunized by the word of God itself. So the first step towards any restart is to make sure that we recognize sin because of our commitment to the authority of word of God of the word of God. I, I, I trust that in our maybe in our study of, of Ezra you have been uh, challenged, encouraged Motivated to 
make some spiritual turning points. Maybe you've made some, some fresh commitments to, to reading the Word of God personally. Maybe you've made some fresh commitments to, to church fellowship, to worship, uh, teaching. And so in a new season... If you are indeed exposing yourself more to the Word of God, don't be surprised if you begin to notice areas of sin that you had not really thought about before. That shouldn't discourage you. That should encourage you. God is at work. And so what do you do if you... So you're recognizing sin. Is that all you got to do? Recognition of sin leads to the second vital step of confession of sin. That's where the work takes place between us and the Spirit of God. Verses 5 through 7. Then at the evening sacrifice, Ezra writes, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. Oh my God. I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads. Our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. First of all, Ezra is doing something remarkable in that he is confessing their sin as if it were his sin. It's a, it's a leader taking responsibility. Ezra is grieving because he's living among people. They all you know, are cultivating their fields and tending their flocks and getting married and having babies. And yet this seemingly normal life they quickly discovered is revealing a spiritual death spiral. And Ezra, with his mind saturated with the word of God, realized this has happened before. And he is rewinding his understanding of the scripture as he looks back over the last several centuries because the last godly king was David in spite of his sin. A man after God's own heart. Then Solomon started out well. And then he married all these foreign pagan wives. And for centuries, God's prophet had come and warned them about the influence of all these people. And if, if you don't repent, and, and he says, we all know what happened. The Babylonians came. They destroyed Solomon's temple. They killed off tens of thousands. They took tens of thousands of others to captivity to Babylon because of our sins. Are we really going to go back to that? Are we, are we learning the lessons of those who have gone before us? Do, do we see the impact of, of sin in generations? Maybe our own families, maybe observing others, so that it affects the way we see ourselves and any influence in our life. So, Ezra is modeling where repentance begins. Repentance being change. Change begins with clear confession. There's a lot. The term confession is a common religious term, and there are gener generations of religious people who have understood 
that confession is something you do when you go before a, a priest, some other human being, and tell them your sins. Of course, edited by you. Confession, biblically, is us going directly to God and telling our sins to God, who already knows them, and so there can be no editing. 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Realize, this is written to those who are believers. Those uh, who, who understand what it means to be in relationship with Christ. This is not how you get saved. This is how we maintain fellowship with the one who saved us. So if we confess our sins, let's just stop there and think about what does that mean to confess? The term means to agree with. Agree with who? Agree with God. Whoops. Agree with God about our sin. Because he knows exactly. And so when in our hearts we begin to talk with him about what the Spirit is showing us, it may or may not be what other people think. It really doesn't matter. This is, this is between God and us. He begins to speak to our heart, and we agree with him. It, confess, to confess is to humble ourselves and see what God sees. Not to defend, not to minimize. In human relationships, we do that. Any argument, you minimize your own fault and emphasize the other. And so if we are prone to do that, we might be prone to do that with God until we realize, verse 15, that he is righteous. And so his standard has no sliding scale. So whatever it is, it's not about us comparing ourselves to the sins of others. It's about comparing ourselves to the holiness of God. It can be... You know, there's such a spectrum of sin, we tend to see it horizontally. But it can be simply an attitude. It can be words we've said that weren't fully true. It can be some secret sins that no one knows and seems no one is affected. And it could be something big and ugly that has caused us great public shame. It really doesn't change a thing when it comes to confession because this is about what God sees. It may be that there needs to be apologies. That's another issue. There may need to be some kind of restitution. That's another issue. There may be all kinds of ramifications, but it first starts with complete honesty before God. The good news, however, is that's where we find hope. If we confess our sins. Then it takes us right to the cross and find that we find that God is completely faithful and fully justified to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the cry of our heart is to be cleansed. It really is, because there's nothing so discouraging, nothing that can be such a downer in our life than sin we've never dealt with. But cleanliness comes. Complete. This needs to become a, a continual. Just, just, just as you might clean certain parts of your house daily. 
weekly, regularly, whatever it is, there is a continual cleansing that we need. And it'll avoid what has happened here that Ezra found. As we confess sin, we quickly notice our need for the grace of God. It's interesting that's exactly where Ezra turns in verse 8. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place. You may have the term foothold, even the word nail or peg. We'll come back to that. A firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. And though we are slaves, Israel still was not ruling itself, but under Persia. Though we are slaves, God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. That's the story of Ezra twice. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of, God, of our God and repair its ruins, for he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. He says, do we realize how much, in spite of the sin record of our nation, we have been experiencing the grace of God this brief moment, back in verse 6, uh, eight rather. This brief moment is 77 years. That's, that's short in God's eyes. But, but the first people have come back and they've rebuilt the temple. It's been accomplished. And that temple, he says, this sanctuary is like a, like a nail that gives you a foothold. This, this, this sanctuary, the fact that we have reestablished worship is, is something secure when, when we've been in a terrible condition spiritually. God has given us a piece of his grace, a window of light and relief. God's not deserted us in our bondage. So he's, he's saying, even while we are in this sinful state, we came out of a sinful state, we were punished for it, we came back, we started, we restarted, now you've fallen again. Do we realize how God's grace is nonetheless treating us well? And this, this temple we have is a foothold. And so the, we have to be realized that even in our sinful condition, God often has blessed us abundantly. And so he draws attention to like a, 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 a window of grace. You've got this temple. I, I don't know what your windows of grace are. I would just encourage you that whatever it is that God is speaking to you about in terms of addressing sin or whatever, please realize that you are nonetheless seeing God's grace all over your life. He's amazing that way. Film blanks for yourself. In spite of whatever sin you're dealing with, there are certain people in your family that, that hang on to you. There are certain friends that have stayed with you. There are certain financial blessings that are a part of your life. God's given you a foothold, maybe in a similar way, just by giving you a church family of people who stand around you and even if they don't know everything about you, they love you. And 
God gives us these things as grace. And it, it, it's like in, in a family, a child can be going through a, a difficult, rebellious time or whatever, and yet there's still a roof over their head and there's still love and there's still support and there's still encouragement in spite of those things. Ezra is motivating them, as God does, with two sides of a coin. Motivating them towards holiness, always the goal. But one side of the, goal, of the coin is that he motivates by confronting them honestly with their sin. While at the same time, it is not a contradiction that he is motivating them with seeing themselves as objects of God's grace. Because that's who Christ is. That's what the cross was. It was justice and grace. God sees us always with complete holiness, and yet, in this incredible way, he understands our weakness, and he takes us from where we are by his grace. Ezra returns to reviewing what has happened spiritually in verse 10. But now, O our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets. He goes back to the word. We disregarded what they said. The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples, by their detestable practices. They have filled it with their impurity from one end to another. Kind of sounds like our society. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. Do you see the heart of God? He does not, he does not want to destroy us. He does not want to discipline us. He longs to bless us. That's, that's the heart of God. But he says, it comes back to the fact that you wrote it down and we disregarded it. We ignored your word. So where we see that we have disregarded the word of God, how do you reverse that? You start immersing yourself in God's word. You stop ignoring God's word. Because it is God's word that keeps us spiritually safe. I'm always... Amazed when I run across uh, Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's obviously the longest psalm. 176 verses, all but three, have a term that refers to the Word of God. It's where we find some of these important verses like 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 119.105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light Unto my path. So it is God's word that keeps us going in the right direction. If God's word is inside and embraced, we will see everything on the outside differently. If we do not invest in the word of God, we will find ourselves influenced by the world. Because that is the that is the conflict, the word and the world. The difference between Christians who are vibrant and growing, however hard that might be, and someone who is falling repeatedly is a commitment to know and 
Obey the word of God. Verses 35 to 7. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. So he pictures this, this path. What are the distractions on this path? Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards this ditch, selfish gain, money. That's, that's one of the distractions because Jesus said, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, that where, that's where your heart will be. So that'll do it. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. So worthless things, uh, it's a term that means uh, emptiness, uh, often referred to idols. They're nothing. They're just, they're nothing. They, they have nothing to offer you. And how many times are our eyes on things that have nothing good to offer us? So he says the only thing that's going to keep us on the path is to be committed to the word of God. Israel was guilty and deserved more than what they received. Verse 13. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. We're back here in the land. Look at us. Shall we again break your commands and and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? And then here's where we started. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. So A, no excuses. We are guilty. Beginning of verse 13. And yet in spite of our guilt, we see grace. Last part of verse 13. You have not punished us as our sins deserve. So what's the, what's the standard? Guilt, grace, but it all comes back to the standard of God's justice. You, you, you would have the right to be angry enough to destroy us, and we have, we have no right to even stand before you. That's the heart of someone who sees sin. As God sees it. You have punished us less than our sins have deserved. That that expression, deserved, is a dangerous one spiritually. If you ever hear yourself saying, I deserve, just uh, wave a little flag. Spiritual entitlement reveals a pride When we say, I deserve, we are thinking about life horizontally. We are comparing ourselves to others. What makes us feel like we deserve something is that we see somebody else has something. And so we do some kind of comparison and make ourselves God as if we're going to make this thing fair. So while I deserve expresses a horizontal view of life, to realize that we have not been treated as our sins deserve by God is instantly a vertical viewpoint of life. 
Because when we see God's holiness, His righteousness, we will see our unworthiness. When we see His righteousness, then any blessing we have is grace and undeserved. Does that sound like a negative view of of ourselves? To say we deserve nothing, God has every right to uh, judge our sin. Does does Ezra need a class on self-worth? Or has he in fact nailed precisely the proper view of self? That we are unworthy, but we are objects of God's grace. We are unworthy, but we are fully loved and forgiven when we are in his family. Even the Old Testament before the cross expressed an understanding of that. Psalm 103, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Full agreement with Ezra. But with you there is forgiveness so that we with reverence, we can with reverence serve you. To, there is no better view of ourselves than to realize that in spite of our sin, we are fully forgiven. So we are unworthy, but fully loved. If we embrace that position we have, and we who live after the cross to realize that we are in a position of being fully accepted and forgiven, and he simply calls upon us to continually confess sin and embrace the cleansing and the forgiveness that he gives us by the blood of Christ so we can restore fellowship continually and be growing in our relationship and finding ourselves in right relationship and enjoying him. There is no better view of ourselves than that. Ezra led several thousand people from the city of Babylon there in the nation of Persia, brought them back to the temple, brought them back to Israel. He came to teach and encourage what he found dismayed him because there had now been generation after generation influenced by the world. He was concerned. He came to ask to seek how you're doing and and he found out and he addressed it head on. So the question for us today is how are we doing? How are you doing spiritually? We we all are sinners. How are you handling it? Don't think comparison, where is your sin compared to somebody else's, but how are you how are you doing are you growing? Are you are you open and honest and transparent first with God about your sin? You might be at some point of uh, fresh commitment. God's worked in your heart, and so he's don't be surprised he's shown you some things. It, it, I like to picture the Christian life many times like an onion that God's just keeping taking off fresh layers. And did you know that? Oh. And so it doesn't matter how many years you've been a believer, how many years you, you have known Christ and walked with him, he will keep showing you, ah, oh, here's an area. The incredible thing is that as we work our way through the la- layers, God's been gracious all the time. Sometimes he's just gracious not to show us things before we can handle them. 
But he is gracious all the way through. Maybe you ask yourself two questions. One is, what are my areas of key areas of sin? And two is, what are who is influencing me in those areas of sin? Where's it coming from? What are my areas of sin? James 2, we all stumble in many ways. Whoever you are, however long you've known the Lord, we all stumble in many ways. Is it uh, our tongue? We, we eagerly tell gossip. Is it, a, is it a negative or negative attitude, a bitter attitude towards certain people? Is it indulging in racy, raunchy entertainment? Is it pursuing the limelight in pride? Is it resorting to some addiction to deal with our pain? Is it some secret sin? Is it some argumentative heart? Just what's God showing you? Sometimes as Christians we um, deceive ourselves with some kind of a sin management system. It's how we rationalize. We will do this, but not that. This isn't so bad. It's not as bad as what they are doing. I'll sin, but only this much. Obviously, that didn't come. You know, the Holy Spirit didn't reveal that to us. We didn't find a verse for that. But are we open? And then to ask the question, who or what is influencing us to that it is the world around us. Do not love the world, John said, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we say we love God and we love the world. John doesn't give us the choice. Obviously, we are pulled more like this. So where is this influence coming for you. It goes way beyond spiritually mixed marriages of Ezra. Are we influenced by the world or are we influenced by God's word? A, a, a little influence check. Um, this, is, this is not meant to be some kind of a legalistic rule or list. Just kind of think through quantitatively if we can do that, your influences. I currently read God's word about how many times a week. Don't give yourself a star if you had a good week. Just ask yourself, is this becoming a regular part of your, your life, personal reading? I study or hear God's word with others about how often a month? This is a setting, Bible studies are a setting. It might be a certain friend you meet with that that is what you do. You've, you, you talk about the Lord and his word. These are influences. I'm influenced towards godliness and God's priorities by these people, media, or other sources. Maybe hours is the wrong thing. Just Maybe it's percentages that helps you. In other words, there's certain people that you know if you're with them, you, you will be more spiritually refreshed. There's certain 
blogs you read, books, wholesome entertainment, Christian music, there, there, are, there are influences that are steering you towards faithfulness to the Lord and His Word. On the other hand, you do have to ask this one. I am influenced away from godliness and godly priorities by these people, media, or other sources. Some of that's unavoidable. Where you work is different than where I work. Where you work, you cannot avoid some of the influences that are around you. All the more important to make sure you have the other influences. All the more important that then in your free time, you do not perpetuate, perpetuate the influences of the world that you've already been struggling with eight hours a day at work. Because what we, what we would call free time is actually a series of choices about what will influence us. So what is God speaking to our heart about when it comes to influence? Because influence becomes our own heart and our own attitude and will affect our relationship with God. And our relationship with God will affect the generations that follow us. These decisions all matter. The two little lines at the bottom, love God, hate sin, come from a man named Hal Schultz. He was my mentor in ministry. Uh, when I was in, uh, we were first married and he was, he was our pastor. And, and uh, as I was preparing for ministry, I got to do an internship with him and work alongside him for a bit. And he would often use this little phrase and say, Sid, it boils down to this. Love God, hate sin. So many times that little phrase comes to my mind. Because if I want to evaluate anything in the, in the moment, it, it boils down to, am I loving God? Because it affects the way I'll see what's around me. And then I hate sin. And the more I hate sin, the more I love God. The more I love God, the more I hate sin. And the enemy has no opportunity when we have a devotion to loving God and hating what God hates. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as children in a weak and sinful nature, yet indwelled by your very presence. Help us. Uh, appreciate the glory of our privilege in Christ that you have made us new chosen to live within us and by your spirit you speak to us if we are listening you guide us if we are hearing and absorbing your word in fact you are enabling us to do all the things that seem impossible in our flesh so that we may walk closer and that we can serve you with joy. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.